You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours... His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Testing. Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay, cool. Yeah, I was just um, <clears throat> walking into the hall this morning and I got a notification in my phone, your utilities bill is ready for viewing. And I thought to myself, happy Father's Day. <laughs> happy Father's Day, everyone. A very good morning. Uh, the Lord bless you. We just came out of Camp Abandon just on Friday and I think it was a beautiful way to spend just those two days, especially with so many of you. Uh, it was a joy seeing all your unmasked faces as we chit-chat over food. Uh, and I praise God for the connections that uh, were going on in between sessions. And on top of all of that, I think we had a lovely time over lunch. But beyond these things, um, God was also at work in our hearts. I think that was really precious. Uh, throughout the camp, we were challenged through His Word to pursue the abandoned life, a life given entirely to having much of Christ and making much of Christ, a life driven by the worthiness of Christ, and by a love for God's church. Well, today I have one more message to look at, kind of like a post-camp session, if you will. And it's a terrifying bit of, of Scripture. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that as you heard the, the passage being read earlier, probably set up a little bit more, and you know, your ears might have tingled a bit, because this is such an alarming passage. Now, this passage prompts us to wonder about a lot of things we thought we knew about Christianity, you know, questions about the nature of God the work of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the church, and the essence of the Christian life. Now, over the two days of camp, we heard that the Christian life is the abandoned life. The Christian life is the abandoned life. The Christian life is about forsaking 
It's about casting aside, putting away. It's about dying and denying. And all this is for the purpose of gaining Christ, to have more of Him, more of His presence, more of His pleasure, more of His glory. He must be our treasure, our goal, the object of our worship and affections. He is the prize, the incredible treasure, the matchless pearl, the desirable bridegroom, and He's the joy of the whole earth. Now, in order to lay hold of Christ, the Christian not only abandons just something, but he abandons everything because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worthy. And from today's passage, you know, it's a, it's a warning to us. It's a warning that hypocrisy and holiness don't mix. I think this is a, this is a warning each and every one of us desperately need. And I pray that we would heed it. So this is what I want to do. I just want to walk us through the story before I bring us to uh, the three main points, and I'll do that one by one, all right? So let's begin by walking through our story today. So in Acts chapters 1 and 2, we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit and the church was birthed. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, we saw the retaliation of Satan, retaliation of Satan, and praise God, the church was victorious. At the close of Acts chapter 4, we were introduced to a man called Joseph. Joseph was one of the people who sold a piece of his property and gave the proceeds, all of it, to the church. And it seemed like the apostles were particularly fond of Joseph. Right? It seems they were so blessed by Joseph that they decided to give him a second name, an affectionate name, the name of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And things were going well for the church. God was using uh, the apostles as powerful witnesses for Christ. And God was using landowners like Barnabas to meet the needs of the Christians within the church. And by the end of Acts chapter 4, there was not a single needy person that remained within the church. Now, it's at this point that we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were among those who owned properties. And maybe when they saw all the attention that Barnabas received, or how dear Barnabas had become to the apostles, or how Barnabas had seemed to be so well-liked, especially after he had sold his land and gave his money to the apostles, something got stirred in their hearts, and it wasn't something good. Now, maybe they just felt embarrassed, right? very pisey, because all the other landowners were selling their properties, and perhaps they were one of the few that had not done so. Now, for whatever reason, Ananias and Sapphira felt compelled to sell a property, and perhaps they had more than one, and to give the proceeds to the church, but in their heart of hearts, they didn't want to do that. Now, perhaps they had their own financial commitments to look into, right? Or perhaps they, had, they noticed that there was not even a single needy person in the church. So what's the urgency, right? They, they felt like there was no point, no need to give every single dollar of the proceeds to the church. Or perhaps they just love money. Whatever it was, they didn't want to give all their money away, but they still wanted the glory and the attention. So Ananias came up with a plan. He would, join, uh, he would join this trend. He would sell one of his properties. He would give the proceeds to the apostles. And he would claim to have given the full value of the sale, but he would actually have kept a cut of the proceeds for himself. And, and it's probably not too much, right? because then people would know uh, that he had withheld some of the cash. It wasn't the full price of the property. Ananias then executed his scheme. And verse 2 tells us that he did so with his wife's knowledge. 
So either she was part of things from the get-go or she only found out along the way, but she decided not to try and stop her husband. In any case, she knew the plan and she was committed to see it through. So Ananias goes to Peter, he drops off the cash and he makes his claim. Peter, the apostle Peter, opens his mouth and Ananias is expecting some words of commendation, some praises to be heaped upon him. Maybe Peter might even give him a second name as well. But to his surprise and his growing horror, Peter seems to have caught on to his scheme. As Peter rebukes him in the presence of some of his fellow church members, his humiliation gives way to fearful alarm. And at the very moment Peter ends his rebuke, Ananias crumbles to the shock of the onlookers and he lays limp and unmoving on the floor. Now the place is filled with a hushed silence. After a moment, someone walks over to the body and checks Ananias and pronounces him dead. Some of the young men take it upon themselves to wrap the body, bring it outside and bury it. No one goes out to call his family members. No one goes out to call Safira his wife. No one steps forward to pay their final respects before this body is buried. God had brought judgment crackling down upon Ananias. And with the fear of God thick in the air, no one thought it was appropriate and honoring to God to commiserate the death of this accursed man. They felt the urgent need to quickly dispose of the afflicted corpse. Now, three hours have almost passed since Ananias was struck dead. News has spread, and there's this sense of dread that was also spreading. But for some reason, this news did not come to Safira. By that point, she hadn't seen her husband for quite some time, and so she makes her way to, to where Peter is, and she's worried. Along the way, she noticed that some people were staring at her. She tries to greet them, but they don't seem to know how to respond to her. They all seem to be in shock, and some were quite fearful. Safira finally enters the venue, and she approaches Peter. Now, in the last three hours, perhaps Peter was thinking and praying about the situation. And as he sees her, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is a question. Safira, your husband said that this was the full amount from the sale. Is this true? Without batting an eye, Safira says, yes, everything my husband said is true. At her response, Peter is filled with both a mix of grief and fierce anger. This is a beloved sister, and yet she was transgressing against her God. He rebukes her and then proclaims a curse upon her. As the young men come in the door, tired after bearing Ananias, but still in shock, they hear a familiar, sickening thud and the sound of many accompanying gasps and they see Safira lying lifeless on the ground. They knew what had happened. In the same way they had dealt with Ananias' corpse, they now deal with Safira's. In the hours after Safira's death, word of this supernatural story spread even outside the church. As Christians and non-Christians alike, they talked about what had happened. They couldn't help but speak in hushed whispers. There was a deep sense of fear, of dread, that was upon every one of them. Now, what do you think the Christians then took away from this whole incident? What do you think they realized through all of this? What do you think changed in the atmosphere of their church and in the attitudes of their hearts? 
Now, I believe there are three things that became apparently clear. And the first thing that became clear, it must have been this. The standard of Christ's demand. You know, sometimes on social media, you see posts about um, an elaborate proposal that a guy has organized uh, for his would-be fiancé or an exquisite gift a husband has surprised his wife with for a birthday or a very thoughtful and well-planned wedding anniversary celebration. And the photos are lovely. The videos are heart-wrenching and the, the write-up from the post is just tear-jerking. And these guys seem like the most amazing husbands, right? And some women, when they see such posts, they will ask their significant others, hey, what's going on, right? Where's mine? Now, imagine if one of these posts was put up by a husband who is actually abusive, neglectful, and arrogantly self-obsessed. And he actually organized the whole shebang for his wife so that he could put it up on social media and so that he could be adored and envied. It's all about his ego. Now, what Ananias did was something like that, wasn't it? He went for the big, flashy gesture, selling his property, and then supposedly giving it all away so selflessly to the church. But in his heart, it wasn't Christ that was being honored. It was himself. Ananias would have thrived as a Christian on social media in this day and age. In verse 4, Peter says to him, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Ananias' gesture was so unnecessary. No one was forcing his hand uh, to, to, to sell his property. No one was requiring him to make a contribution to the church's love fund. So why did he? Ananias decided to make this wild gesture because he was seduced by the possibility of fame and status. Ananias' heart was completely taken by the prospect of being honored and loved. And this is why Peter rebukes Ananias for not guarding his heart. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Ananias had lost sight of the fact that it is the heart that Jesus requires. It is the heart that Jesus demands. That Jesus' standard is the fullness of the heart. That's what Jesus is looking for. He wants everything of our desires, everything of our longings, our hungers, our yearnings. He wants our hearts. And that's why I said at the camp that we must live the abandoned life for our Savior and no one else. Jesus must have our hearts. Now, when that isn't the case, then our hearts are left wide open for Satan's hook of temptation. And he will fill our hearts. He's the father of lies. So it is deception that he fills our hearts with. Deception not only against one another and hypocrisy, but deception ultimately against Christ. You know, in the Gospels, we often see Jesus surrounded by tax collectors, prostitutes, fishermen, people like that. And though they are nothing much in the world, yet Jesus treats them with such respect, dignity, love. Why? Because they've given their hearts to Christ. 
Whereas with the Pharisees, these were the somebodies of that time, Jesus had a, a particular hatred for them. Why? Because they were all about being seen for their big gestures and not about submitting their hearts to God. They would sound a trumpet as they gave to the poor in order to be seen by men. They would stand in public places to pray in order to be seen by men. When they fasted, they would look miserable and gloomy so that the whole world would know that they were holy men who were fasting. Big, flashy gestures. But their hearts were far from God. And Jesus called them children of Satan. Satan had filled their hearts to live a lie. Now people, Christ demands our whole hearts above our wildest gestures. So guard your heart. Now, do you struggle with this? Do you find yourself quick to do things for God, for the church, for the sake of others, yet you struggle to pursue Christ in the privacy of your own room? How are you guarding your heart? You know, it's not a wrong thing to serve the church or to take on big responsibilities, but how are you guarding your love for Jesus? How are you making it top priority that you are kept in awe of Him? that you are abiding in Him, that you are remaining in His love? Has Satan been filling your heart with deception? Has your Christian life become more and more of a lie? A lie not just to the other Christians around you, but a lie ultimately against Christ. Now, what does Jesus Christ require of His church? What does He expect of His followers? People, the standard of Christ's demand is wholeheartedness. He wants your heart, people. He wants to be your everything. That's the first thing. Now, here's the second thing we can glean from our story today. The severity of Christ's displeasure. How do we make sense of Ananias being struck dead? And then we see Sapphira dying as well. Ananias didn't even get a chance to repent. Sapphira was given an opportunity to confess, which she didn't do. But then we look again, and, and did, does, the, does the punishment fit the crime? Right? All they did was that they told a lie, and they were immediately put to death. No proper funeral. No send-off by even their family members. You know, it feels really extreme, really cruel. Now, in the book of Joshua, something similar had happened. The Israelites had miraculously crossed the Jordan River, and they had circumcised and consecrated themselves, and they were ready to take the promised land. Their first battle is with the great city of Jericho, and God promised them that He would bring the walls of Jericho tumbling down, and He promised to give them the victory. But He required of them that they would not take any of the loot, any of the items they found for themselves. Now, one man disobeyed this command. Achan took a cloak, some silver, and a bar of gold. He smuggled them out of the ruins of Jericho. He dug a hole under his tent, and he buried the loot there. The next battle Israel had was with a small town called Ai, and the Israelites were expecting an easy victory. Instead, they were humiliated in battle. In their defeat, 36 Israelites lost their lives. Why? Because one man, Achan, had corrupted the Israelite congregation 
by disobeying God and by coveting material things above God. Now, Achan's story serves as a backdrop to what is happening with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, what if God had not dealt with Ananias and Sapphira? He had let them, let them be, let them go ahead with their scheme. Now, where would the church be? If Ananias, uh, if, if, sorry, if Achan's deception had brought defeat and death into the Israelite congregation, what would Ananias and Sapphira's deception have brought to the church? Now, if God had done nothing, Ananias and Sapphira might have gotten their wish. They might have become as popular and as prominent as Barnabas. And now imagine Ananias and Sapphira becoming leaders like Barnabas, doing discipleship, leading small groups in worship, maybe even preaching a few messages. Now what would they have imparted to the younger or newer believers? What would, they, what would all of this have meant for the early church that was still in its infancy? But ultimately, Ananias and Sapphira were put to death, not simply to protect the church, not simply to, to protect the future of the church, but they perished for the same reason that Achan was eventually put to death. It was because they had violated Christ's holy character. They had violated Christ's holy word. They had violated the sanctity of God's people among whom Christ's holy presence abides. Hypocrisy and holiness do not mix. Our holy God will not abide among a people who live deceptive lives. Instead, hypocrisy invites judgment. Now, judgment is a strong word. Sometimes, you know, we Christians, we don't realize that there is a kind of judgment that is final and ultimate. And then, where the person is physically destroyed and spiritually destined for hell, but there's also a disciplinary kind of judgment. In 1 Corinthians 11, there's a similar incident to what we read in Acts chapter 5, uh, where sin was followed by God's judgment. The Corinthian Christians were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and because of that, people had fallen sick. People had even died. Now, Paul declared that they had eaten and drunk judgment upon themselves. And this is what Paul had to say about the judgment. This is how he describes it. He said, but when we are judged by the Lord, and he's talking to Christians here, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what happened to Ananias and Sapphira was a disciplinary judgment that was meant to preserve the sincerity of the church's faith in Jesus. The judgment was to spare the church eternal condemnation. But then what about Ananias and Sapphira themselves? They died. How did this judgment that fell on them do them any good? And we wonder, were they truly saved as they died like that? No, were they cast into hell? Now, I don't think we can be sure. And I think it is a terrible thing when the hot anger of God is kindled and even a Christian were to die unrepentant in their sins. But what we can tell is that hypocrisy and judgment go hand in hand. Now, the irony is that Ananias and Sapphira, they were hoping to avoid judgment through their hypocrisy, right? Through their deception, they were probably hoping to be accepted and celebrated in the church and then to be spared being judged in any kind of way. Similarly, we too, we might opt for hypocrisy so that our faults are concealed and people think the best about us, 
But this is the very same hypocrisy that also invites the judgment of God. So do you take the call to the abandoned life lightly? Are you half-hearted in following Christ? Have you been satisfied to just fake it and just cruise along? Now, what makes hypocrisy so attractive is that it offers you the outcomes that you actually crave, right? Whether it's approval, honor, status, attention, whatever it is. And it offers you all of that and more, and you only have to pay half the effort, half the cost. You don't have to really live the abandoned life. You just have to make a few strategic, attention-grabbing sacrifices, and then you get the outcome you really desire. But how wide and easy is the gate that leads to destruction? Hypocrisy invites judgment. They go hand in hand. So be warned, when Jesus reveals his displeasure, it is severe. We heard this at Camp Abandoned when we read Psalm 2. And the final verse says this, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Are you living a double life? Then let this story be a warning for you. Spare yourself the painful discipline of the Lord. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. Repent and bring your whole heart to the Lord. We come now to the third thing that we glean from today's passage. The scope of Christ's dominion. Jesus is after our hearts. Now, when we withhold it from him, when we bury it under a layer of self-gratifying deception, Jesus comes again for our hearts, but this time with severe displeasure. If there is anything we glean from today's passage, it is this. Jesus is Lord over his church. He is holy. He is jealous for the zeal of his people. And he despises hypocrisy. He despises pretense. He despises deception. Jesus is Lord over all. And we see that Jesus' dominion, his reign, his rule, stretches not only over to the works of our hands, whether in small things or whether in big, wild gestures, but the dominion of Jesus Christ reaches even down to our hearts. He wants the things of the deep places. He wants to be the object of our daydreams. He wants to be our desire and yearning. He wants to be at the core of our motivations. Now, to to those who are careful to guard their hearts, He blesses, He flourishes. But to those who withhold their hearts from Him in deception, He will hold them to account. He is Lord. He will not be denied. Now, in this, we see that Jesus' dominion, his reign, his rule, extends not only over the good that is done in the light, but also to the wickedness that is plotted and schemed in the dark. In Luke 12, Jesus declares, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. I've experienced this many times with my own parents. How many things I've tried to cover up, and yet the Lord will reveal them. To my parents. Christ, in that same way, will uncover hypocrisy and deception, even if through the most painful ways. He reigns even over our disobedience. And not only does He reign over our disobedience, but even the sickliest, most wicked things in our hearts, 
He has authority to work even these for the good of his people. He is Lord. Through the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, there was great fear all around. Even unbelievers trembled when they heard these events. There was something about this incident that made even the unbelievers' hair stand on end. But most importantly, Jesus used this fear to shape his church. Now, in the closing verse of today's passage, we are told that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You know, this is the first time in the book of Acts that the believers of Jesus Christ are called the church. Before this point, the author of the book of Acts called them uh, the brothers in chapter 1. In chapter 2, they were called the Galileans, the witnesses. Most recently, in chapter 4, the believers were called the friends of Peter and John. But this is the first time the word ecclesia is used to describe the church. And the meaning of the word is congregation, assembly. And those words, congregation, assembly, they remind us of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the Israelites were not only called uh, a nation or a kingdom, but God's people were also called the congregation. And it's like through this incident of judgment, Christ had refined his people to that very point where they were ready to be numbered with the saints of old in the congregation. The early church had so many experiences. They experienced miracles. They experienced deliverances. They had uh, uh, experienced warfare. They had battled the fear of Satan and his works of darkness. And they experienced victory there. But it was not until the people knew to fear the Lord that they were ready to take on the title of Ecclesia, the congregation, the church. Now this is how far Christ's dominion, his rule and his reign stretches. Even the worst things, he purposed them for good. Even when the church feels like she is at her lowest, Christ has already positioned her for a whole new level of glory and growth. The church cannot do without the fear of the Lord. That fear is our wisdom, our sanity in a world that is often bizarre and confusing. The church cannot do without the fear of the Lord. That fear is our guardrail. It keeps us on the narrow and that difficult path that many times seems so unattractive. The fear of the Lord saves us from death, true, complete, spiritual, final, ultimate death. And that fear is our assurance. We have confidence to face this life. We have rest. We know what it means to be satisfied. We need the fear of the Lord. And the good news is that Christ doesn't need our permission to fill us with it. I mean, look at the passage, even the unbelievers, those outside the church, even they got a taste of that fear. And that again is the extent, the scope of Christ's dominion. Even, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He chose us, people, not we, Him. And if that was true even then, then do you think Jesus needs our cooperation, our permission to even put that fear in us? He has every ability to do that, even if you and I were to stubbornly refuse him. But it, it will be terrifyingly painful. Our passage today warns us to be wise, to bow the knee to Christ, to submit to him, and to humbly welcome him, to teach you to fear him. 
The scriptures tell us, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, and this is language that is associated with the fear of the Lord, for our God is a consuming fire. Until we grasp the fear of the Lord, we will always be pursuing a very shallow glory of Christ's worthiness. You see, it's not only His grace and His kindness as Savior that makes Him worthy, but also His standards, His severity, and His dominion as King that complements that picture of His worthiness. We need the fear of the Lord. Now, if you are here and you are not a Christian, would you consider this passage from the Scriptures very carefully? If Jesus is to be feared, then He must also be the one you need to save you and to deliver you. He came once before to take our punishment upon Himself, but one day He is coming again, but this time He will come with a sword. The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira is a picture of how swiftly and how suddenly Christ will return and how powerfully His sword will fall. Would you turn to Jesus? He is your help. He is your salvation. Come to Him and find that He is gentle and kind to those who come humbly to Him and who admit their need for Him. If you do consider yourself a Christian, but you've gone quite far from the Lord. Would you also consider the passage this morning? Jesus says that he will return like a thief in the night. That at the least expected moment, while the wicked are in the midst of feasting and enjoying their worldly delights, he will return. Today's passage is a call for you to come. Come home. To return to him while it is not too late. His hands are still open. Would you come? His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new this morning. For those of us who are walking rightly with the Lord, with a clear conscience before Him, and you desire the deeper things of Him, I want to encourage you. The Lord is for you. Come to Him. If you want to grasp His worthiness, then you must also know to fear Him. Ask Him to fill your heart with that fear, to guard your heart with that fear. As a church, if we would be a people who pursue the abandoned life, not just in form, not just in the outward, but in spirit and in truth, then we will be a people who will be able to say that the greatest thing about Agape Baptist Church is that the Lord is surely in our midst. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.